from Genesis 3, verses 8 to 24, can be found on page 6 of your bulletin. Genesis 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy está tomada del libro de Génesis, capítulo 3, del versículo 8 al 24. Está imprimida en el, la página 7 de su boletín. Cuando el día comenzó a refrescar, oyeron el hombre y la mujer que Dios el Señor andaba recorriendo el jardín. Entonces corrieron a esconderse entre los árboles para que Dios no los viera. Pero Dios el Señor llamó al hombre y le dijo, ¿Dónde estás? El hombre contestó, Escuché que andabas por el jardín y tuve miedo porque estoy desnudo, por eso me escondí. Le respondió, ¿Y quién te ha dicho que estás desnudo? Le preguntó Dios, ¿Acaso has comido del fruto del árbol que yo te prohibí comer? Le respondió, El mujer que me diste por compañera me dio de este fruto y lo comí. Entonces Dios el Señor le preguntó a la mujer, ¿qué es lo que has hecho? La serpiente me engañó y comí, contestó ella. Dios el Señor dijo entonces a la serpiente, por causa de lo que has hecho, maldita serás entre todos los animales, tanto domésticos como salvajes. Te arrastrarás sobre tu vientre y comerás polvo todos los días de tu vida. Pondré enemistad entre tú y la mujer. Y entre tu simiente y la de ella, su simiente te aplastará la cabeza, pero tú le morderás el talón. A la mujer le dijo, multiplicaré tus dolores en el parto y darás a luz a tus hijos con dolor. Desearás a tu marido y él te dominará. Al hombre le dijo, por cuanto le hiciste caso a tu mujer y comiste del árbol 
de que te prohibí comer. Maldita será la tierra por tu culpa. Con penosos trabajos comerás de ella todos los días de tu vida. La tierra te producirá cardos y espinas y comerás hierbas silvestres. Te ganarás el pan con el sudor de tu frente hasta que vuelvas a la misma tierra de la cual fuiste sacado. Porque polvo eres y al polvo volverás. El hombre llamó Eva a su mujer porque ella sería la madre de todo ser viviente. Dios el Señor hizo ropa de pieles para el hombre y su mujer y los vistió. Y dijo, el ser humano ha llegado a ser como uno de nosotros, pues tiene conocimiento del bien y del mal. No vaya a ser que extienda su mano y también tome el fruto del árbol de la vida y lo coma y viva para siempre. Entonces Dios el Señor expulsó al ser humano del jardín del Edén para que trabajara la tierra de la cual había sido hecho. Luego de expulsarlo, puso al oriente del jardín del Edén a los querubines y una espada ardiente que se movía por todos lados para custodiar el camino que lleva al árbol de la vida. Is this when I preach? Is that right? All right. Just want to make sure. Let's pray. Let's pray together. God, we need your help. We really do. Because the issue here is not just our minds understanding, but our souls even submitting ourselves to your word, believing what you say about us and about yourself, and even allowing ourselves to be changed and conformed to your word. It's a big deal, but it's for our joy. It's for our glory that you give this to us. And so with expectant hearts and great hope, we say, come Lord Jesus and speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. You might've seen on the web floating around this fascinating video, sort of but fascinating in the way in which it illustrates just how big the universe we live in really is and just how small we are. Sort of this graphic uh, model depiction of different uh, planets and moons and celestial objects that we actually know of. And so it starts with our moon, the moon that orbits our Earth and it zooms in on it and then it pulls out a little bit to show us how much bigger the smallest planet in our solar system, Mercury, is than even the Moon. It moves along, shows Mars even larger than Mercury, of course, and Venus, and then we get to Earth, uh, the planet on which we live, and then it moves right over, panning to this sudden jump to this ginormous planet called Neptune. So much larger can barely even get your mind around how large that must be. Our world seems so big. You move on to Saturn and Jupiter and finally we get to our sun. And you can just almost barely see down the row how small planet Earth is compared to the sun. And then it keeps on moving down the row. You get to this star much, much bigger than our star one called Pollux, an orange giant, and you move along, and there's another one called Arcturus, a red giant, this deep red massive star that's already making our star look like a tennis ball. And then you get to this red giant star called 
Aldebaran, sounds like something from Star Wars, but just gigantic and just fills up the entire screen and then you keep on moving on a star called the pistol star apparently a blue hypergiant and then finally we land on vy canis majoris uh, a red hypergiant star that's just the the largest known star apparently uh the largest star that we have found and then it sort of unpacks it a little bit the star has a diameter, apparently, a diameter, so going from end to end, of 1.7 trillion miles. Okay, so I don't, I don't even know what that means, right? It's just uh, 1.7 trillion miles, sort of down the street, right? And, and they try to illustrate how, how big this thing is. They say an airplane flying along the surface of this star... Okay, I, I just dropped my sister off at the airport this morning. She's flying from here to the Bay Area in California. It's about a six-hour flight covering about 3,000 miles. Six hours. It's a long, tiring flight. Some of you fly four times that distance on a regular basis around the world, right? This star, if you were to take an airplane flying along the surface of this star at 560 miles per hour, it would take you how long to get all the way around the star? How long? 1,100 years to get, get around the entire star. That's how big this star is. Now, it pans out some more. Now, this is the biggest star in the universe, it, in, in our galaxy, actually. It, it pans out to the whole galaxy and shows that this massive 1,100 years to get around the whole entire thing star is but this tiniest of specks in the entire Milky Way galaxy where we live where there are several hundred billion such stars that form our galaxy and then there are a hundred billion such galaxies out there beyond ours. And then with wonderful understatement the video ends flashing one word at a time. No, you are not the center of the universe. <laughs> and I said, I, I needed to hear that. I needed to be reminded of that. We're looking at a passage, and we have been looking at a series of passages that have been teaching us about the nature of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is treating yourself and demanding that others treat you like you're the center of the universe. It's the moral instinct, as it were, to, to put me first in all things. My life and relationship, my time, conversations, my priorities, my money, my everything. Put me first. Not surprisingly, therefore, sin as me at the center of the universe absolutely screws up our relationships with other people. Could you have guessed it? As theologian Stanley Grintz puts it, sin severs relationships to others. Although we are designed to enjoy wholesome, enriching fellowship with each other, we now find ourselves exploiting and being exploited. 
Our loss of community expresses itself as we jostle with each other for power, influence, and prominence, or as we allow ourselves to be robbed of our dignity and sense of worth. In short, sin alienates us from each other. Sin, as it enters the world, it does a lot of things. We saw two weeks ago that sin alienates us from God. It breaks and severs our relationship with God. Therefore, we have this massive void in our lives, our hearts, our centers of meaning. Sin also alienates us even from ourselves. We looked at that last week. The way in which we are ridden with guilt and a sense of purposelessness, a, a sort of lostness, and a, or a, a drivenness to fill that void with whatever we can. We don't know who we are. We are strangers to ourselves. Today we're looking at how this passage teaches us that sin also alienates us from one another. From one another. How is it that it does that? How is it that this passage teaches us how sin breaks our relationships with other people? Well, three quick things, and we'll talk about it a little bit more afterwards. Number one, sin hides. What we find in this passage is that sin, by its nature, hides. It conceals. You see, in the beginning of the way in which the man and woman in this passage were made, they shared perfect intimacy. We're told they were naked, and yet they were not ashamed. Total disclosure to one another. They saw one another fully, knew each other truly, and loved each other fully as well. And then we hear this in verse 10, as Adam was confronted by God himself after having sinned against God by taking of the fruit, he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Sin causes us to hide from one another our true selves. We do not trust one another, and for good reason, because we harm and violate each other. The selfishness of sin makes us driven by fear and insecurity such that you want to just conceal and cover yourself and not let other people in. And so the instinct that we have is to manage our image the way that people see us. I don't know about you, sometimes I feel like I wake up, think about the people I'm going to encounter and pull out from the closet different parts of my personality that I want to display, but only those parts. Make sure they come away with the right impression of me. It's strangling, isn't it, to live like that? Sin makes us self-protective. Sin makes us uh, feel like we need to keep our distance and preserve ourselves. Do you hear it? Because sin really is all about self. But sin not only causes us to hide from one another... Sin also causes us to hide from ourselves. We're blinded. We don't really see ourselves clearly. Uh, we're, we're deceived. Here we see in this passage, Adam and Eve just not even able to admit that they had done wrong. They're immediately getting into this cycle of blame. No, no, don't, don't, don't confront me, God. Don't tell me that I've done anything wrong. God is asking questions and they say, no, not me, her. 
Not her, him. Not me. Look away. Because I myself won't even let myself see my true broken self. Have you taken a glimpse lately, friends? Will you dare to see yourself truly in the mirror? As I mentioned, the word blame and the idea of blame shifting, one of the ways that we do hide from each other, the way we keep each other at a distance, is through one common strategy, and that is to blame each other, to accuse, uh, to fend each other off. We, we see this in verse 12 again, when God confronts Adam. God says, what have you done? Well, Adam says, well, the woman you put here uh, with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. God then turns to Eve and says, hey, well, what's going on with you? And she says, well, yeah, the serpent deceived me and I ate sort of a game of hot potato past the blame. No one wants to take responsibility. We hide. And even as selfish as we are, and even when we do wrong, Instead of repenting, instead of admitting our wrongs to each other, instead of telling the truth, instead of humbly coming to each other with honesty, let alone coming before God, we are quick to blame each other for our wrongs or even blame our circumstances. Well, you should have just seen the traffic out there. Well, that's why I'm just so ornery, so cranky. You know, you've got to understand I'm just having a bad day. Or, hey, you said that first. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you the truth. Uh, you, you, you said it first. Or, or this person has been terrible to me. They're lucky I didn't actually, you know, come out with more heat, fierceness, anger. It can actually become a habit. I mean, I wonder, I, I see it in myself, just how instinctual blame as a defense mechanism can become as a way of keeping people at a distance. I mean, maybe listen to yourself in the coming week how much you find yourself, maybe not verbally, but quietly, accusing other people, pinning responsibility on others for what's wrong with you. Listen to yourself. You might hear just repeated complaints that you hear in your heart again or even with your mouth again and again and again. Listen closely. You know, it might actually be like listening to a Robin Thicke tune. You might find yourself saying, hey, this sounds familiar. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I know that's the case in my life. I know that's the case in my life. The habit of blame because we don't dare let people in. Of course, you notice it's not just blaming one another. Did you see how Adam also was blaming God? Uh, the woman that, you know, you put here. Don't look at me. I didn't make her. I didn't choose this. You've been blaming God lately? The life you have, your past, your present, the people you're surrounded with, things that you feel like you have no control over. Rather than humbly coming before God and saying, yes, I do think I am the center of the universe. You're saying, God, this is your fault. Mm. Sin hides. Sin hides. Secondly, sin estranges. 
Sin ruptures our relationships with each other and makes us strangers to each other. Look at verse 12. Again, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And if you remember how we've been reading about the relationship between the first two human beings, this ought to be really stunning to you, the way he's suddenly talking about her. The way he's talking about his best friend, his wife, the woman before he used to stand and live before naked without any kind of shame. The one whom he shared perfect intimacy, honesty, self-disclosure, joy, love, mutual service, everything you can possibly imagine in a human relationship. Suddenly he's like, what, what, what's her name? What's her name? Her. You know, the one that you made. I don't know where she came from. Oh, she made me do it. You know, the one that you put in this garden, she gave me some fruit. She came out of nowhere. You know, I don't know where she came. Tempted me. Sin makes us sudden strangers to one another. Because it colors our eyes and it gives us a distorted vision of one another because we're so darn full of ourselves. The self-centeredness of sin makes us begin to see each other almost like a caricature of themselves. Paul and I, a number of years ago, we had this street artist sort of, you know, draw up one of those charcoal sketches, just a lot of fun. I don't even, Paul, I don't even remember what city we were in, maybe in New York or Martha's Vineyard or something. And, you know, caricatures, right? Sort of these fun things where they take who you are and just blow all of your facial features out of proportion, right? Sort of just enough that you can tell who it is and, and maybe more than you want to see. So, of course, you know, they take a look at me. And so there's this guy on this picture with this massive forehead and, you know, fleshy lips and, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, this big old wavy coiffure, you know, back when I had more hair, right? Uh, and this is what we do to each other, where we see one another and we don't see each other for the real people that we are, but we make cartoonish versions of each other and especially their flaws. We blow them up and we say, oh my gosh, they're a little annoying. No, they're really annoying. I can't stand them. In fact, they're evil. <laughs> and the way our self-centeredness distorts the way we see each other. Get away from me. I barely know you. You are a stranger to me. This is why at the heart of a lot of our broken relationships really is this distancing of myself. You're not like me. I'm better than you. You are other. Stay away from me. It's why xenophobia, this fear of the other, can be such a marked feature of our sinful hearts. Where anyone that's not like me, whether different racially or different personality-wise or different in gender, is just immediately a threat to me because there's no way that I'm going to let you come near me and love me. I don't trust you. You're a stranger to me. Everyone else in the room is weird, and I'm the only one that's normal. Sin estranges. Thirdly, sin not only, not only hides and not only estranges, sin also exploits. You notice how shamelessly Adam throws Eve under the bus 
and for his advantage. Uh, when you actually look at the second half of verse 16, when God is talking to the woman about the long-term consequences of sin, that when it infects not only their hearts, but all those who would come after them, he says this, speaking to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, what does that mean? We actually find the very same pair of verbs, desire and rule, in Genesis chapter 4, the next chapter of this book. There, desire refers to the way that a hungry animal looks to devour its prey. And rule refers to what you need to do to tame a wild beast. See, he's saying her desire will be to dominate. His desire will be to subjugate. He's pointing to a lifelong savage power struggle. Yes, specifically in this context between husband and wife in marriage, but more broadly in all relationships, sin exerts power over one another and exploits people for our own advantage. Get out of my way. I'm going to make things work for myself. Do you see this at all in the patterns that you have in your relationships? Just a a desire to dominate, to to control people and things, to sort of set people aside, using them as a stepping stone to get to where you want to get career-wise or popularity on your block-wise or self-image-wise and reputation-wise. Maybe you tend to dominate verbally. Uh, That might be with harsh words, sort of pinning people down. Or maybe it's with quiet cynicism. Or it can even be with sort of passive aggressiveness or sort of subtly manipulative words. You can dominate a person physically, of course. Being even physically abusive. Or maybe you never touch a person, but you puff your chest up or whatever you might do to just serve notice that they better watch out. Or maybe you dominate people financially sort of using your money and your financial power to manage your circumstances no matter what it does to those around you. Maybe you're just always insisting that relationships, whether in your home or with neighbors or wherever it might be, always have to work on your terms. You get to decide where this relationship is going. You get to dictate, maybe even on the level of where you eat or what you do to hang out. But sin exploits. And of course, this works not just on a personal and individual level, but also on a social and public and corporate level. Uh, Sin distorts, sin exploits, sin hides, sin estranges, even in society's structures. There is systemic and institutional expressions of these sins as well, written into our laws and the customs in our cultures. The way in which sin makes us self-centered and makes the world work for ourselves, not because you individually are making sure it happens, but because institutions and the way life works is working for you. 
in the way money flows and resources flow, in the way politics works, in the way even churches and religious communities work, in the way that legal institutions operate. Sin really has infected our relationships with each other. How then can we be healed? Just quickly here. How can our relationships be healed? The story of this passage, the story of the entire Bible, is a story of a God who undoes the power of sin by doing everything contrary to the instinct of sin. The one who actually is the center of the universe and deserves to be treated as the center of the universe removed himself and made himself nothing. All for sacrificial love so that you might be drawn into restored relationship with the God with whom we've been alienated. Now you can be the friend of God. Instead of hiding and keeping us at a distance, here is the story Of a God who came. And instead of making us a stranger. Though we deserved and actually were in Adam and Eve. Banished from the presence of God. Here is one who was himself in Jesus. Banished from God's presence. In eternal judgment upon himself. Suffering on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you banished me? Why have you estranged me? He took that for you so that you might become, through him, the friend of God. Here's Jesus, who was the perfectly righteous one, blameless, absolutely, And yet instead of pointing fingers and setting upon you blame that you and I actually do deserve, took your blame upon himself. Out of grace and sheer love made himself your scapegoat. Taking your blame, taking your condemnation, taking your Sin, as 1 Peter 3.18 puts it, for Christ died for sins once for all, the perfectly righteous for the unrighteous, the blameless for the blameworthy to bring you to God. Jesus, who instead of using his divine power and his true status as God, as the center of the universe, instead of Using that power to dominate and to control and to exploit, instead became a servant. Let go of his power, took the low place of the cross, and died. As Philippians 2 put it, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be exploited, but rather laid down his power and privilege, assumed the form of a servant, became a human being like you and me, then stepped in our place, died our death, even on a cross that you and I might find true life.
This is the story of the God of the Bible. This is the story that's called good news. And you can understand if this starts to become your story or more of your story, does it not start to change your life and pull you out of these addictive, mindless, habitual patterns of self-centered sin? Where we're actually able to finally step out from hiding. Where we're actually able to be honest about my brokenness and sin, which is really the most freeing thing in the world, the thing we all long for. Stopping blaming other people because you're getting to know your own sin and evil of your own heart better than anyone else's. And you say, hey, I've got no one to blame, at least to blame myself. And that's not to say to heap false blame or false guilt upon myself, but when it's true, I'm honest and I'm real. I need the forgiveness of God. I receive the forgiveness of God. That you can come out from your hiding because you know that you're coming out to a God of mercy. Even with Adam and Eve, after they screwed up, the very first word that they heard from God was a gracious question. Why are you hiding? A a, a word of mercy, not of immediate condemnation, not of immediate threat, but rather a question, what is this you have done? Have you thought about it? And it's a question for all of us. Will you dare ponder it? What have you done? Can you bring it then to a God of all mercy? Can you bring all your power plays in your friendships and in your relationships? Can you lay down power and become a servant? Can you even lose control for the sake of love as Jesus did for you? Can the story of this mercy and good news, the story of this Savior, heal your heart, free your heart? To draw near to one another once again. Because sin separates, sin alienates, sin makes us strangers to one another, even enemies of one another. Sin does that, but our Savior does more because He's greater than all of our sins. And as He changes our hearts, and dwells in our hearts, He enables our me to become again, once again, a we. What might your broken relationships, or your hiding, or your estrangement, your running away from people, your violation of people, your control of people, what might all of this look like if you would lay it all down at the throne of mercy, receive grace, and let your heart be changed by the Savior who came to love you, Christ who died for sins and sinners once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God and to bring you to one another. May it be so by the grace of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we're asking that you would heal our relationships, that you would cause the sweetness of your Savior to heal and to overcome the power of sin in our lives. Have victory in us and in our community. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing this song, which really is a song of comfort, talks about trials that we might face. Maybe you bring a troubled relationship to God in this time and to say, my life, this relationship, my love, all of this is in your hands. worry. You don't have to worry. And don't you be afraid. And don't you be afraid. Joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. Troubles, they don't last always. Troubles, they don't last always. For there's a friend named Jesus. Oh, there's a friend named Jesus. Who will wipe your tears away. Who will wipe your tears away. And if your heart is broken. And if your heart is broken. Just lift your hands and say. Just lift your hands and say. I know that I can make it. Oh, I know that I can make it. I know that I can stand. I know that I can stand. No matter what. No matter what may come my way. My life is in your hands. Come on, let's say that again. And don't you be afraid Joy comes in the morning Troubles, they don't last always For there's a friend named Jesus Who will wipe your tears away And if your heart is broken Just lift your hands and say, Oh, I know that I can make it. I know that I can stand. No matter what may come my way, my life is in your hands. With Jesus, I can take it. With Jesus, I can take it. Yes, with him I can stand. With him I know I can stand. No matter what may come my way, my life is in your hands. Hallelujah. So when your tests and trials, they seem to get you down. All your friends and loved ones are nowhere to be found. Remember there's a friend named Jesus who will wipe your tears away. And if your heart is broken, just lift your hands and say, Oh, I know that I can make it. I know that I 
may come my way. No matter what may come my way. Put your life in his hand. My life is in your hand. Oh yes, with Jesus I can take it. With Jesus I can take it. Yes, I know. With him I know I can stand. No matter what. No matter what may come my way. have a seat. Why don't you have a seat? want to pause for a little bit of Q&A before we uh, move to communion just to give you a chance to talk, to ask questions, to digest. And so if uh, you have questions on your mind, feel free, even if you're brand new, uh, to ask it. No question is off limits, uh, but if you could ask a question, that'll help our back and forth, our dynamics. So any questions based on today's teaching? Yeah, Marcus and then Steph. Yeah. Yes. Right. And so when Cain kills Abel and God confronts Cain, uh, one warning that he gives there, I think it might be in verse 17, uh, 7, uh, Cain, uh, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. That's animal language. He said, it desires to have you. Its desire is for you, like an animal ready to pounce. Uh, but you shall rule over it or master it, tame the wild beast. And so that's where I'm picking up that context to the power struggle uh, that God is forecasting as sin infects our relationships. Steph. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's good. We'll talk more about the details of the rest of the passage next week as we finish up this study. Um, Stephanie's pointing out how in the latter half, God pronounces some curses upon uh, the world as an indication that, hey, now that sin and selfishness has infected everything, there's going to be real fallout here. We are now forever living in a broken world because of this. But if you do notice, and you're pointing out this rightly, um, all of it is rightly referred to as a curse. We live in a screwed up, broken world, and like a shroud that covers over what once was pristine, beautiful, and glorious, um, now things are broken. So it's right to say all of it is cursed, including our relationship. But it is important to notice uh, God's mercy, as scholars will often notice, that God never directly and specifically pronounces a curse on the man and the woman. Um, He curses the ground, he curses the serpent. Adam and Eve, all of us do live under a curse, but it is not a word of ultimate judgment. There always is mercy that remains for them. Great question. Others? Yeah, Yamki. Yeah, you know, this let's let's go get some pizza sometime, right? Let's talk. This is that big question. It's hard to um, understand where where did evil even come from? Right? We know philosophically, theologically, by definition, it could not have originated from God, evil being by definition contrary to him. God, if he wills evil, would explode, cease to be God. He can't do that. And yet he's in control of all things. So it does look like for one reason or another, he permits it to happen. And I think that's some of the technical language that Christian philosophers and theologians will try to uh, use to say, obviously, God absolutely was superintending over everything. This was not an accident. He was not surprised by any of this, and yet he was not actively willing it to happen. So let's use the language of God for various reasons, most of which are mysterious to us, allowed for, permitted evil to enter the world. Um, So that's as far as we can really get. We can talk through that some more if you'd like to, uh, but just to float that quick answer out to you. Katie, and then Paul, and then we'll be done. Yeah. Well, so Jesus uh, deals with our... So let's take individual lives. Jesus changes our status before God. He has forgiven you if you're in Christ. But you still are full of selfishness, aren't you? Right? I am. And so what he has done is he has given you a new relationship with God. And yet he still needs to deal with the actual uh, remaining problem. He starts to do that here in this life as he gives us the Holy Spirit and he actually starts to change our life. That's one of the wonders and beauties of God transforming people. And that's the testimony of many of you here. But sin still remains. And that's the same case for this world as well. Christ has come. He has, especially by his resurrection, sent a shockwave of renewal and healing in this world. But that work is not going to be finally completed until he returns again. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week when we talk about this passage telling us that even nature itself got infected. 
by our sin and evil. That's partly why we live in a broken world of natural disasters and disease and such. So we'll look at that some more. Great question. Paul, take us home. You're good? Covered. All right. Well, you all may have more questions. We want to be a community always in dialogue, always learning together. Uh, So please feel free not only to approach me, but just to talk to your friends and people in your neighborhood group or to join a neighborhood group uh, to be growing in community. But we're going to finish up with a, a time of communion. And this is a table of reconciliation. We who once were estranged from God and from one another are brought together in friendship with the king. And it's a table called communion because it builds in not only our relationships with him, but also with each other. When you come forward and take communion today, uh, say hello to each other (laughs) if you're up for it. That's not a command, but I invite you uh, to remember that this is a community, a family meal. Uh, Act like there are real people around you. It's good to say hello to embrace each other and to do this as one body. Let me say a word of prayer for this. Jesus, we pray your blessing upon this bread and wine and juice. We pray it knowing that you have promised to be present in these things. You you say this is my body and blood and we believe you that you are going to give real grace to us if we open wide the mouth of our faith to say we are starving for more of you, Jesus. We bring our broken lives, we bring our broken relationships, we bring our need for healing, and we're trusting that you are sufficient for all of that. So be generous in pouring out the grace of your Spirit upon us. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, tonight he was betrayed for bread after supper, he poured out the cup before them, saying, This is the new covenant, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of all your sins. The cup of reconciliation, healing, drink all of We have three tables that you can come up to. You can come right away. Or you can sit in your seat and reflect or pray for a minute or two. It is totally up to you. So come on your own time. We have crackers for those with allergies. If you don't want the bread, we have wine and juice. It is totally your choice. Just hang on to those cups and leave them, please, in the big baskets on top of each table just before you leave this building. Come forward. Uh, Come not as whole, fixed people, but as broken, needy people. People that are sinners saved by grace, healed by the grace of of Jesus. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. give you some. You'll find it on the screens overhead, also on page 9 of your bulletin. This is just what faith might sound like for you today, maybe as you take